0: Well, a very warm welcome to St Paul's. The joy of being here is that I hear the chime of the clock and know precisely that we're here at one o'clock. My name's Canon Tricia Hillis, I'm the Canon Pastor here. And as I said, it's our pleasure to welcome you. Today, we're thinking together about the ministry and the life of the Holy Spirit. And St. Augustine described the Holy Spirit as the bond of love. And as we gather in anticipation of the Feast of Pentecost, we're delighted that we're going to be encouraged to explore the Spirit's loving action in our lives, but especially significantly in the world. We're delighted to welcome our speaker, Dr. Jane Williams, Jane is the Assistant Dean and Lecturer in Systemic Theology at St Melitus College here in London. She's also a visiting lecturer in theology at King's College and has previously taught at Trinity College in Bristol. Jane read theology at Cambridge before going on to work in theological publications and in education. She's the author of several books and we're delighted that some of those will be available at the end of our session today. She's written also for the Church Times and is an experienced editor. She's regularly invited to teach and to speak all over the world, so we're absolutely thrilled that she's with us in this intimate setting today, a real privilege. You may know that she's married to Rowan and they have together two children. So, would you please join in welcoming Dr. Jane Williams? Jane.
1: Thank you, Tricia. And um, particular thanks to all of you for giving up an hour of sunshine. Maybe our last, so uh, I particularly appreciate it. Um, it's a pleasure to be in this lovely setting, this beautiful, beautiful cathedral, uh, and to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit. As you know, our archbishops have asked for a great wave of prayer over the week leading up to Pentecost, um, and asked us, asked us all to pray for the coming of God's kingdom, um, and in particular, to use the prayer that Jesus taught us, the Our Father, which is a kingdom prayer. Um, and it's an appropriate call at Pentecost to call for the coming of God's kingdom, because God's kingdom is shaped in human lives by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to waffle for a bit and just check, am I audible? Can you actually hear me? Good. Um, When I get very excited, which I do, when I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, I will go too fast and get less audible. Um, So please feel free to uh, remind me of this fact, Um, and I will attempt to slow down. Um, We are going to be concentrating primarily On the Holy Spirit, um, the third person of the Trinity, Uh, but I want to put this just in a little uh, briefly in the context of the whole understanding of God as Trinity um, because, see I knew there would be something, it comes of being a midget doesn't it? Um, Because we only make sense of the work of the Holy Spirit if we make sense of that in the context of the whole being and action uh, of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, it's, people talk about the doctrine of the Trinity as though this is something complicated that got added on later by theologians who had nothing better to do with their time but invent complex doctrines. But in fact, it's only because um, we understand God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we can say what we say about the Christian God at all. And I just want to put that in a little bit of context before we begin. So, for example, we can only say um, that God is love because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Otherwise, love is something that God uh, may occasionally feel and may occasionally act out of, but love would be a secondary attribute, only possible to God when there was something else that God had already made that God could love, unless God is already love in God's self before anything else is created. So, this most central thing that we say about the nature of God, that God is love, only makes sense if God is in God's self loving, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not dependent on us in order to be loving, but already loving in God's self. So uh, our vision of God is not God, one is one and all alone and evermore shall be so, transcendent and beyond interaction. But instead, our vision of transcendence is changed by this understanding of the nature of God. Um, transcendence is this most profound interconnection which is best described by the human word love. Love not just as an activity that God can do or not do but God's very being. So that's one thing that we can only say if God is Trinity. You must admit that's quite an important thing. It's one we always say about God that God is love and it only makes sense if God is Trinity. Secondly, and I think, um, I hope this is what we're going to build on as we go through the rest of our time together, uh, it's central to the way in which we talk about how God and human beings interrelate. It's a question that philosophers and theologians all through the centuries have come back to time and time and time again. How does a wholly transcendent God allow the likes of us, beings who are who are bound by space and time, how does this transcendent God and people bound by space and time come to to relate? How do we come to know anything about God and God's character if God is wholly transcendent? And in particular, how might we come to know anything about God and God's character um, in a way that is respectful of our free humanity? How does God let us get to know God without the divine, overwhelming human freedom and human human choice? And there are ways uh, in which God could make God's self known. For example, God could deliver a kind of authoritative capsule, untouched by human hands or human participation. Uh, And that would then require total obedience and be independent of human reception. It would be authoritative whether we recognize it as such or not. God says we do and some of us talk about God in that way at times. Um, But that does seem to undermine our self-understanding as free and active shapers of the world and of our destiny. Uh, An understanding that seems to arise out of the very biblical text um, that shows us God in interaction. So that extraordinary Genesis creation story that talks about God deliberately sharing God's creativity, God's power with the human creatures that he's made. That doesn't make sense if uh, what God delivers is a capsule untouched by human hands that has simply to be received. Am I making sense so far? With me so far? Excellent. Um, but if God is Trinity, then... We are able to say that the transcendent God brings all creation into being out of love through what we have already seen to be the nature of God, the outpoured love of Father to Son that is held in the ongoing and returning love of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine also says that this Son, through whom all things come into existence, comes to live in the created world so that this relationship, this primary relationship of love, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is lived in the reality of history. We see what that relationship between Father and Son in all eternity looks like because it's lived out in Jesus speaking to and acting on behalf of his Father. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, enables human creatures to see that relationship between Father and Son, that relationship of mutuality and trust and concerted action as the reality that they, that we, long for. The truth around which they and we shape our lives. In other words, the Holy Spirit in creation breathes the love of Father and Son throughout the universe, breathes that love throughout the universe, filling all breath with that instinct that longing for relatedness, drawing us into that transcendent truth of relationship which is at the heart of all things. And this interaction of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit also honors us. It allows us to participate freely as Jesus freely offers his obedience to the Father rather than simply obey. Indeed, we can't describe it as a relationship a relationship of love unless it is freely entered into. So this understanding of how um, Father, Son and Holy Spirit interact in all eternity is then um, breathed out into the way in which we are called into that interaction in our own lives, that free and um, intimate interaction. So what I'm saying is the way in which God allows us to get to know God is not Here is the truth, obey it, but here is reality. Here is um, the world as you know it and as you long for it to be. This interrelation, this giving and receiving, this interdependence and love. This receiving of yourself, each one of us receives ourselves in this free participation with the people and the world that we interact with. And I think on one human level, that's completely a no-brainer, isn't it? We all know um, beyond uh, questioning um, that we are formed by our relationships and by our interactions. They make us the people that we are becoming. We are shaped by the things and the people above all that we desire and that we emulate, because these desires shape our decisions and so shape the people we are becoming. Those relationships of desiring and longing and wanting to change um, and looking for ways to shape ourselves towards what we long to be, um, that's just obvious in any kind of human interaction, I think, with or without talking about God. It's just how um, the world clearly is. But I think it's also clear at um, the non-human level, which is why I want to say that this is a reality of the whole universe, not just a reality of how human beings, how sentient beings interact. But I think you can see it um, in the interaction of the whole of reality. Um, For example, in maths, in music, in biology, in art, um, why do we paint images of the physical world. If you think about it, it's a very strange thing to do. And yet, as far as we can see, the the creatures that became human have, from the the beginning, wanted to um, visualize their world, wanted to image their world in various kinds of ways. Um, And it seems always to have been um, a means of drawing the physical world outside us and ourselves into some kind of complex interaction. So that it's not just external, it's not just the world out there, it's the world that begins to have meaning, as we depict it. Um, why are complex mathematical equations beautiful and thrilling? Because they are. There's something deeply satisfying when an equation works out, when you find that an equation that works in a classroom works across the universe, there's something thrilling about that interaction. Um, It's as though we're touching here the heart of reality, which is relational, dynamic, intertwined, and which sings to us, you might say, very universe singing to us somehow of the loveliness of this truth, um, a loveliness that doesn't stay outside us, that doesn't leave us unchanged, but draws us in. So, all of this is what's called the doctrine of the Trinity. And you can see why I get very annoyed when people think it's an external, irrelevant um, piece of uh, theological sophistry. It isn't. It's about the nature of God and the nature of reality. God is love, and love is the reality of the universe, is the simplest way of putting it. Provided you don't make that word love too soppy. Provided it is about that complexity of desiring and interacting. Which is why God's way of communicating is through this interpersonal interaction, and not by dictate. God is not interested in automata but in people who image the Trinitarian truth of the world or long to image or feel towards imaging that that Trinitarian truth of the world in their interactions with with each other and with God. That's why God has to call people into relationship because that's what reality is. It's not um, an add-on to any kind of religious obedience or religious observance. It's a necessary part those whom God loves have to get to love each other. The hardest bit of any faith. Um, And yet um, the the writings of, of John, in particular the three epistles of John, just make it perfectly clear. If you say that you love God, but that's not visible in your interactions with each other, then you're deceiving yourself. Sorry, that's an uncomfortable thing to say. But there we go. So in the revelatory event in which God comes to us most clearly, um, this event that Christians call the incarnation, the role of the Holy Spirit is clear. The Holy Spirit enables the genuine communion, that continuing interaction of God and human in Jesus Christ. What the Holy Spirit always does from the beginning, draw people into that relationship with God, is instantiated, is given human form in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit enables the conception of Jesus to be both human, completely human, utterly historical, contingent, dependent on the events of history, dependent on Mary saying yes, dependent on the baby surviving childbirth, utterly contingent, and yet at the same time the coming into flesh of the Son of God. Luke says that, in case you want to check out what I'm talking about, Luke one thirty-five. In other words, the Holy Spirit enables this human being, a real human being, still to be in the relationship that is that of the eternal Son to the Father. This one human being who yet shapes that relationship, shows us that relationship, lives out of that relationship. and. What we see in Jesus is what we see ongoingly in the work of the Holy Spirit in the rest of the world. What Jesus, what the Holy Spirit does in Jesus is to show that relationship, that eternal relationship of Father and Son in um, a a visible um, human historical form and the Holy Spirit is doing that in all of us all through our lives. Um, making Jesus-shaped people. People who live out of that relationship of interdependence with each other and with God. Um, Building Jesus-shaped relationships and lives, relationships in which we know ourselves to be daughters and sons of God and therefore know ourselves to be related to one another and know ourselves to be the ones who inherit the kingdom who have this responsibility, joyful responsibility, for the world that is ours because it's God's. And God longs to share it with us. So when um, Paul in Romans 8 talks about prayer, this is how he sees the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, If you look at that great chapter of of Romans 8, it's talking about... um, Uh, how we are brothers and sisters, uh, how we are led by the Spirit to know that we are children of God, Um, and through the power of the Holy Spirit we know ourselves to be adopted brothers and sisters of of each other, uh, and have then the right to call God Father. Again, that characteristic Christian prayer, to call God Father, as though we had a right to do that. The One Transcendent One who created all things, encourages us to call him Father um, through the Holy Spirit praying in us. Um, so I'm reading Romans 8 from verse 26. The, Holy, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words, and God who searches the heart knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So that sense that we are caught up, as it were, into a conversation between God and God, in which we are given a role to play as the Holy Spirit enables us to know ourselves part of that dynamic set of relationships uh, between Father, Son and Holy Spirit that create the world and create our being as we speak to each other and in particular that ability to call God Father, which as Paul reminds us in Ephesians inevitably again commits us to being brothers and sisters with all who call God Father. Uh, There's only one surname across the whole Christian church, Paul says, Um, and that surname you might say is Jesus. We are all Jesus brothers and sisters. I do recommend Romans 8 if you're looking for a doctrine of prayer. It's a really, really interesting place to be. And then, by the end of the chapter, where Paul has got to in Romans 8 is, therefore, uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How could it? Because it is breathed through us. We have become part of the love of God in Christ Jesus as the Holy Spirit uh, lives in us. Um, God has enabled... God's self to go down even into suffering and death, even into those places that are the very opposite of God, held together in the power of the Holy Spirit so that God does not break from God, so that we can find God in all of the deepest, darkest places of human existence. God has gone there before us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So starting here in this um, complex interaction that is the nature of the God we worship, gives us a clue as to what we're looking for when we're looking for the work of the Holy Spirit around us. If what the Holy Spirit does is to make Jesus-shaped lives, lives that live out of the joyful call of the Father to draw others into that love, um, then we begin to get a sense of what it might look like when people do not necessarily know themselves to be called by the Holy Spirit. We're looking for ways in which uh, human beings are enabled to be daughters and sons of God. We're looking for those characteristics all around the world um, and so are enabled to be family to each other. We're looking for those signs and rumours. In the New Testament, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is church building, not beautiful stone buildings like this necessarily, though they're outworkings of this church building. Um, But church building as um, beginning to build this new community, which is the beginning uh, of a new creation, a community that's based only on being God's daughters and sons. It's not based on nationality, it's not based on class, it's not based, based on wealth, it's not based on status, it's not based on language. It's based simply on the fact that we have responded to God's call and allowed the Holy Spirit to start to build Jesus-shaped lives in us. Um, we may not always remember that's what the church is, but that's what the church is. It's the beginning of the new creation, not because of anything we do, not because we've got it right, you may have noticed that we don't, right, but simply because we have allowed the Holy Spirit to begin to start building Jesus-shaped lives and invite others into that community, the beginning of the new creation. Um, so, for example, the church-building gifts of the Holy Spirit might be things like uh, the Bible, um, which uh, speaks of itself as God-breathed, which means it's full of the breath of the Holy Spirit breath of God is the Holy Spirit, and the Bible is the witness to the way in which God works, and you know, there is a family resemblance all the way through the scriptures about the way God works, calling people together, giving them ways of living together uh, that enable them to know each other uh, and relate um, with honesty and integrity and decency towards each other, and enable them to to begin to recognise where their boundaries are need to be extended. Do you recognise that as a description of the Ten Commandments? It is. If you think about it, it is a description of the Ten Commandments. It's building a community where people can honour each other and know themselves to be daughters and sons. But also that they can remember that their edges need to be extended. They're required to look after their slaves that uh, the foreigner within the gates has rights too. That it's community building, it's showing something as, of the nature of God. That's even clearer in the Sermon on the Mount. You can never say, I've done my duty and I'm stopping here. The Sermon on the Mount is very scary from that perspective, isn't it? Because it's always reminding us that we are daughters and sons of God and therefore requiring us to extend our boundaries And and include more and more people in our gracious action. Um, There are what Paul calls the varieties of gifts that are given by the One Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. But they're all for the common good and they're all to build up this extraordinary gifted community. So they're clearly relational gifts, they're not for the exercise and, and the authority and the power of the individual who has that gift but to build up the body. Um, This is the Holy Spirit who enables worship, which is the glorious confirmation of our response to God's love. Um, Perhaps particularly powerful in the sacraments, um, where the Holy Spirit does over and over and over what is done in the Incarnation, which is to make the material fully pregnant, you might say, with the Divine which is why um, at a Christian Eucharist, uh, it is the moment at which um, the Holy Spirit is asked to come upon the gifts of bread and wine that make, them, that make that transcendent moment where heaven and earth unite. That's why you could actually do a whole course of Christian doctrine based around the sacraments. I'm not going to do it now, but mm-hmm. ask me back and I will. Um, but there are also, um, w- once you've seen the, the, the sort of church building gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's important then to notice how they work out in other settings. Um, Because, uh, as I've said, if the church is the beginning of the new creation, then, and if the God that we're talking about is the God who made all things, then there should be a connection between those two. The church is the beginning, not the end, of the new creation. The beginning of a community that is gradually to enlarge and enlarge until all people are daughters and sons of God. Um, The whole earth belongs to God. Faith is not a matter of personal religious preference, but of calling to uh, and longing for the coming of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So some of uh, what are often called the charismatic gifts, for example, healing and words of knowledge or prophecy show what it might be like if the world were really fully connected to the children of God. If we were actually so deeply attuned with the reality that God has made that we respond to it and it responds to us. That relational reality of God. But in Luke 4, the beginning of his um, public ministry, Jesus quotes Isaiah saying that the Spirit is the one who brings good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the, for the enslaved. You might like to go and, that's my I a slightly odd translation, you might like to go and have a little look at that. The Spirit is the one who tells us what all of this theology has been telling us all the way through, that God is on our side, that God longs to draw us into God's love. Uh, And this aspect of the daughter-and-son-making role of the Holy Spirit is just as important as the more obviously churchy ones. Um, This role of the Holy Spirit also makes Jesus-shaped lives. It makes daughters and sons of God. Those in poverty and slavery and disease are the sons and daughters of God, just as precious and important to God as anyone else just as much called to be part of this great dance of relationship at the heart of the universe. Sons and daughters of God should not be treated as though they are slaves or persons of no account, as though their suffering and their dignity does not matter. It matters as much as uh, Jesus's suffering and dignity matters. They are sons and daughters of God in Jesus-shaped possibility. So the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the kinship that we have with each other, not our chosen kinship, but our real kinship, because we are all made by the one God. And the Holy Spirit lays on our hearts the demand for us to act to each other as though we were close and loving relations. So the imperative to fight for justice is just as much a gift of the Holy Spirit as beautiful worship charismatic healing. They go together. They're not separate things. They're part of the same web of the work of the Holy Spirit. So what I've argued is that um, I've argued from the doctrine of the Trinity this description of the nature of God. And remember, all our descriptions of God are going to be inadequate. That doesn't make them untruthful. But it does make them inadequate. When um, C.S. Lewis is trying to describe uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, he says it's like trying to describe to a flat surface what a three-dimensional surface might be like. If we are flat surfaces, all of us, if we're sort of pieces of paper on which we draw um, two-dimensional reality and we think that's the whole of reality, then no wonder we can't quite get a sense of three-dimensionality. Um, Lewis, I think that's quite a helpful example. It's not that it's impossible to have three-dimensional shapes, it's just that if you're two-dimensional you can't see how to do it. So I've argued from the doctrine of the Trinity to relationality at the heart of all reality. Um, um, I've suggested that we can see this at human level, but also at the level of all-material reality. All-material reality interacts and is formed by interaction evolution the big bang any any way you want to start it's talking about complex webs of interaction which form and shape all things that follow from them as trisha so rightly reminded us augustine calls the holy spirit the bond of love he got into a lot of trouble for that And our um, uh, and um, Eastern Orthodox who are celebrating Easter today, so join them as we celebrate the risen Christ today. Um, Orthodox have very often suggested that um, Augustine is the problem with the is is the start of the deficiency of all Western understandings of the doctrine of the Trinity because of the because he depersonalizes um, the Holy Spirit with this word bond. Father and Son sound like human relational terms. We think we can get our heads around that. And so I would like to argue that, in fact, the fact the Holy Spirit is not a human relational term is quite a good corrective. It reminds us not to map from our human relationships onto God, but increasingly to allow God's relationships to map onto our human interaction. Our human relationships are not yet anything like the Doctrine of the Trinity. We are not yet Jesus, living Jesus-shaped lives um, out of utter glorious dependence upon the Father and return to the Father. Um, and so Holy Spirit is a word that reminds us of that, that reminds us there is still um, glorious work to be done. Bond is not a great word because it sounds as though we have no choice about the matter. But in fact... Um, I think Augustine has been much maligned. I am always trying to defend Augustine under these circumstances because what he's actually talking about is this thing that we have been exploring. The Holy Spirit is the power of God that draws us into connection. And sometimes that is a very strong bond and sometimes it's a weak bond. Uh, And one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is exploring the people whom you are willing to be bound up with with whom it's easy to relate and the ones you'd much rather not have anything to do with where you might need to pray that the Holy Spirit will bind you to others (coughs) um, that the Holy Spirit will build this Jesus-shaped willingness to be bound into the likeness of others within us the Holy Spirit who binds the eternal Son in union with the human Jesus can do that for us in relation to each other if we are willing. Um, One of the great Russian theologians says that the Holy Spirit takes its incarnation in the faces of the saints. Um, and, uh, And again, I think that's a really suggestive phrase, that what we're looking for then is, as we look at each other, is that presence of the Holy Spirit where we will suddenly see a likeness flaming out in somebody who's utterly different from us because the one Spirit animates them, begin to see a family likeness that's completely obvious to God but that we have prevented ourselves from seeing because we have not been willing to be bound into uh, that likeness of love with each other. The Holy Spirit then, the power of God that draws us into connection, that fills us with this longing for beauty, the longing for justice, with the longing for love, with the anger at all that stands against those things in our world uh, and that draws us into the life that builds daughters and sons. Children of the Father made in the image of the Son, made family by the Holy Spirit. Basil the Great, who in the fourth century wrote a great treatise on the Holy Spirit, um, one of the things he wanted to say is it's impossible to call upon the Father (coughs) except by the spirit of adoption into the Son, more or less what Paul is saying in Romans 8. Um, and that therefore all who call upon um, the Father uh, are admitting that they wish to be adopted by the Holy Spirit into the Son's family, into this one great family um, that uh, flows from Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So um, it's Sunday afternoon, it's warm um, you're sitting down, the chances are that you've gone to sleep. Um, I'm told I have a very soothing voice. Um, I have the effect, You uh, remember in the Flopsy Bunnies, the, 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 the lettuce, which Beatrice Potter describes as soporific, I'm told that, that my voice has that lettuce effect. So, um, I, may I, I, We are going to open it to questions, but with Tricia's permission, I'm just going to give you a minute or two, just to talk to your neighbour if you would like to. It's not compulsory. Holy Spirit doesn't, just because he makes us daughters and sons, doesn't make us wild extroverts, okay? Um, and, and see if there was one thing that particularly struck you, one thing you particularly agreed with or disagreed with, and then the questions hopefully will flow from there.
0: I always feel that this is the hardest thing to do, to break into conversations that are so full of life already. Um, but we would like to extend this to a conversation that involves all of us so we hope that your questions are are ready how we'd like to um, hold this bit of our session is that if you have a question i will endeavor um, to ask you to be as concise as you can Um, i'll try to repeat the question because i'm having a a microphone to my body here um, to make sure that all of us can hear you Um, so I'd like though, if I, as I'm standing, to actually ask if I can begin the first question. Um, And it was this. Jane, I was really fascinated um, to ask about how the church might be different if we were learning to look more for the work of the Spirit outside of our walls and outside of ourselves, um, in addition to looking within.
1: It's a question that probably um, couldn't have been asked before about the 4th century because, of course, we didn't have walls (laughs) before then. Um, And uh, there's something about um, enclosing a a sacred space um, that can make us inward-looking. And don't get me wrong, I love... Some of the sacred spaces that um, that we have created to honor God and to allow worship. I think one of my favorite places in the world is Canterbury Cathedral um, but nonetheless it does tend to make us think that what we're that what we're doing in the building is the important thing um, whereas as a matter of fact what we're doing in the building is equipping us to go and look for the Holy Spirit outside the building. we're um, equipping ourselves to remember the nature of the God that that we're Uh, that we worship whom we will find uh, wherever we go Uh, we're equipping ourselves with the food that god provides us uh, to offer to his hungry and uh, needy world so um, we've done something seriously dangerous by making people think that coming into a building is the work of the church coming into the building is in order to equip the church to go out of the building (laughs) Um, we, we have a, a, a central service that's called Get Lost and the mass, you know, go away <laughs> that is what it means it means get out there um, but again we've hidden it well under all kinds of layers of other kinds of meaning Lovely, thank
0: you So let's start with some questions I'll endeavour, can we start with a friend here Difficult this is is such a is unreality what is it? Uh, <laughs> you talk about full reality.
1: Thank you. I would like to send you to read Augustine um, because you've got nothing else to do, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I would recommend the Confessions in particular because really interestingly, Augustine um, argues quite strongly that um, that unreality is what we call sin or evil, um, because because God is so utterly real um, and so full of life and dynamism that what is not really real is therefore not God, is therefore sinfulness. And it's actually, in a way, I mean, I know, again, I, I won't do the whole problem of evil lecture, but it, in a way it's quite a helpful understanding. because. Um, because it suggests what Augustine wants to say is nothing that God has made is in itself intrinsically evil. It's only when it gets into damaging relationships with other things um, that it be, begins to become damaging. So the is unreality. Exactly, and it's, it comes out of unreal relationships. Augustine would argue. So it's, it's very. It's a really interesting question. Uh, and as I say, I think it's. Um, I think it's Book Seven of, of Confessions where he. Particularly looks at that.
0: Thank you. I think there was a question here, and I see a hand there. So let's start here. Thank you very much for the talk. I wish I'd heard it before I had a dialogue with my Muslim and Buddhist friends, because I find it very difficult to explain the Trinity to them. I find that very, very difficult. In fact, actually, the interesting thing is, I find God quite often when I go to the Buddhist temple. I don't always find the amount of worship.
1: Um, And, I mean, again, that's such an important thing. That's why it it makes me so angry that the doctrine of the Trinity is so badly understood. Um, Because, uh, I I mean, a a good, clear-thinking Muslim is the best person to talk to about the doctrine of the Trinity because it makes you realise you've got no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, And the way that uh, a Muslim will say, well, it doesn't make sense, it's illogical. But those are the questions that we need to be able to grapple with which is why I did want to start in, in that basis of the doctrine of the Trinity. We, there is no other way of describing the God we believe in apart from this way. And those two key things about, uh, um, about the, the, the reality is, is love and how does God communicate are really good questions to take into, into faith, not to knock each other down, but just really to help ourselves clarify what it is that we say we believe. And I um, I mean I don't know what it, I don't know what it is about a Buddhist place of worship that makes you feel more at ease with God than in a Christian place of worship, but that's something to feed back to a Christian place of worship because it suggests there are things we still need to learn. I think it's actually
0: the community. The strength of that community is so strong that in fact I've been described as our Catholic friend, our member of our Catholic member, member of our Buddhist family. <laughs> Thank you. And at the back there, please. I think my question links in with this, and certainly with outside the walls. Um, Christianity is not the daughter of Buddhism or of Islam, but of Judaism. Very much in the news this week, of course. If we are the daughters of Judaism, can the Spirit be found? anywhere in the Old Testament.
1: Is the spirit at work in any way in Judaism? And what implications does this have for dialogue
0: with our Jewish brothers and sisters?
1: Um, Again, such a good question. Would you like to answer that one, (laughs) (laughs) Trisha? uh, I, I, obviously, as a Christian theologian, I want to be extremely cautious about reading back my understanding into the Hebrew Scriptures. And I think all of us as Christians need always to remember that the Hebrew Scriptures are, are borrowed Scriptures for us. They have a primary context in another, um, another faith with whom we are cousins, um, uh, but the sort of simple adoption that we've done throughout the centuries of just assuming they're basically Christian scriptures um, uh, ha- has enabled all kinds of um, well impoliteness I think at the very least um, uh, and I mean obviously from what I'm saying I am saying this uh, this is the one God Father, Son and Holy Spirit who always exists um, and whose book um, of the scriptures is full of the work of the Holy Spirit is full of the breath of the Holy Spirit. So I am undoubtedly saying that, from a Christian perspective, it seems perfectly clear um, that the, uh, the 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 son and daughter building work of the Holy Spirit uh, that we now understand to be Jesus shaped um, it goes on all through God's interaction with His people, as witnessed to in the Scriptures. Um, but I would want to say that with a with a, a Jewish cousin standing next to me saying how they see their own scriptures, because otherwise it it, it feels, again, a bit um, uh, colonial, doesn't it?
0: I think it's interesting in terms of Jesus the Jew quoting from Isaiah in the Luke 4 passage that you were referring to. So that sense for me of looking outside the walls and saying, well, where are the poor being set free? Uh, There is the Spirit. Um, And that can be in various contexts.
1: And that really important um, rediscovery from the late 20th century onwards, that we actually can't make sense of Jesus without that Jewish story. Um, the rediscovery of the Jewishness of
0: Jesus is, is, has been so fruitful. Thank you. There are many hands going up. Let's come to our sister there. Thank you. I just
1: wanted to say that you know, it's going to ask you about, really, it's very much to the last speaker. Um, and that is um, <laughs> the sentence of, in the Creed, in the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. um, a very short passage really about the Holy Ghost and uh, the believer there, who has spoken through the prophets. Exactly. And um, so for me that, to the beginning of time, really. I mean, I don't know what the writers were thinking about in that particular wording, which is in case a translation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem to encompass yes. time, mystery yes. yes, thank and you, that's really helpful.
0: Yes. Thank you, that reminder of the, the words of the creed who has spoken through the prophets. Um, let's come, yes, please. So yes, your question, yeah. Um, Hello, everyone. I want to hear what was presented. Yes, for uh, um, and in all these events, I think during the creation, that you were told about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, let us live in my,
1: my image. So one of the was Spirit at work, uh, God.
0: Son,
1: the So that's where I
0: am, right? my mention. There, then i i you know, not, to be there, so not my, the much i the of, of the Holy Spirit because the Muslim people Thank you. Thank you for that and reminding us that we're in this season of Pentecost almost uh, and uh, Ascension this day, uh, this week, so that promise of Jesus. Yep,
1: where again what we see at the right hand of the Father from now on is a human figure who draws us um, into uh, that family relationship.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Let's come to Jim. We knew that of Christianity around the world and in this city. So I wonder if um, uh, what do you think we, as I see mostly Anglicans, can learn from their focus on the Holy Spirit in their church life and worship, um, or also maybe whether you have some reservations about their understanding of the Holy Spirit.
1: Thank you. Um, I mean, I, I think one of the things we can definitely learn is is this expectation that God is active. Um, and I think that uh, it's it, we have it's very easy to settle into good, comfortable Anglican ways where you know we we speak regularly to God, but God stays in His place and we stay in ours. I'm caricaturing, um, and it's a tradition that I love. But but again, C.S. Lewis describes that extraordinary moment where you sort of touch. You're doing some electrical work, and you suddenly touch a live wire, and you suddenly think it's alive. And that, that sense <laughs> that you get in a, sometimes in Pentecostal meetings that God is alive, um, I think uh, uh, is something that we powerfully need to, to remember. And of course, people will do that in different ways. Um, uh, so I wouldn't wish to suggest there's only one way of knowing uh, the living activity of God. But I also do think that um, that to counterbalance that, it's very, very easy. Um, to slide from living Pentecostal faith into um, a desire for just constant renewal of spiritual experience. Um, And I think that is dangerous because um, every experience gets boring after a while and then you're looking for another experience that's more exciting. Um, And um, actually what we're called to is this (coughs) life of living Jesus-shaped lives, which requires um, with discipline as well as those glorious experiences. Uh, and if, um, if our, our lives of faith sort of give up when we're not feeling the presence of God with us, then we are going to be useless for most of our lives, aren't we? So it has to have that combination of knowing the, the living presence of God, but also within a, a framework that will enable us to go on worshiping and living, um, even without excitement sometimes you've been very patient, oh, thank, thank you
0: oh, amongst the thank you for the Trinitarian approach i mean, which is a huge relief apart from anything else I would like to invite your reflection on a privilege I had four years ago when I was with Kenneth Cragg on Pentecost Sunday and over coffee before service just musing, he said wind needs sails Fire needs coals. Parables of self-giving makes the sacrifice complete. And I'd like to invite you to speak. <laughs> well,
1: uh, that seems a bit um, over the top, really, because I mean it's, it's so beautifully said, isn't it? Um, uh, and uh, and that that sense that um, we might be God's sails. It's just beautiful, isn't it? Really lovely. Um, but I, if, you know, if I'm going to quibble, which I really don't want to because it is so beautifully said, so I think I might quibble with the word needs because part of what I'm getting at with the doctrine of the Trinity is that God doesn't need us. Tithe, God loves us. My time is needs, I mean. No. <laughs> so, you know, we, I think we, given the country I was in, I could, could have yeah. been my dream. And of course, you could say it the other way around as well, can't you? Sails need wind. Same mm-hmm. <laughs> but no, that's beautiful, thank you.
0: Anyone else? Yes, thank you. Coming back to our case of friends, they talk a lot about baptism in the Holy Spirit and the importance of that as an event, which we don't seem to emphasise much within the Anglican Church. I
1: wish you Well, we do it's just that typically as Anglicans we do it liturgically. Um, So if you look at what the baptism service says in the Church of England, it says we are passing from from death into life, that we are letting go of our old lives in order to walk into uh, the death of Jesus and his resurrection life. So um, it it says it absolutely clearly, as the Pentecostal um, practice would want to say, that you're you're doing something really dramatic, really significant in turning from an old life into a new life. Um, and um, for some people, liturgy makes that point more clearly, and for other people, other ways of doing it make it more clearly. And I think, um, I think it is actually very similar theology.
0: exactly, yes. And a hand, thank you.
1: To a lecture on and I had this clear picture in my mind's eye of three figures in gold. The first one standing, the second reclining, the third standing behind, the little behind the second. But what really got me was that they were so enjoying each other's company. So interacting so equally the well, I think the gold is here, the sun
0: is through it. I I <laughs> Thank you for that reminder of God as interactor uh, with joy and love flowing Yes, I mean again, it's a beautiful,
1: beautiful picture and what it instantly reminds me of of course is that great Rublev icon which I should have brought with me um, but didn't uh, uh, if, you, if you don't know it go away and Google it it's by a great Russian painter called Rublev R-U-B-L-E-V um, and it's one of the uh, most popular depictions of the Trinity. And you see the three figures um, clearly having a rather nice l- lunch. They're around a table, <laughs> they're out in the garden. It's a, it, I mean, it looks lovely. Um, and then there at the front is the space where we are invited to come and join them at the table. I mean, it's, it is the most beautiful, beautiful depiction. And the fact that God really enjoys God, can make um, God can sound very dull if we're not careful, but this sense of of the real dynamic interacting love of god before all things that that's the reality out of which we
0: come it's glorious isn't it time for one more yes thank you
1: The Holy Spirit, yes, again, um, there's a book called um, The Holy Spirit, calls The, the Holy Spirit the Go-Between God, um, oh. the one who goes between uh, the persons of, of, of the Trinity, but also God and, and us. So the Holy Spirit is God's messenger, which again, when the Creed talks about spoken through the prophets, um, it is part of the work of the Holy Spirit all the way through, is to, um, to, to draw people into what I'm calling these Jesus-shaped lives. Um, And therefore, that's that's our primary vocation as Christians, is to to become sons and daughters of God, to live Jesus-shaped lives. And then uh, a variety of other vocations and gifts arise out of that to enable um, human beings to to build the kind of communities that enable that kind of flourishing of those kind of um, Jesus-like lives. Um, but the, the Holy Spirit as the, as the messenger of God, the go-between God, I think is, a, again, a great reminder. Thank you.
0: Jane, thank you for the riches of what you shared with us and that phrase of the Spirit growing at us as Jesus-shaped people to live Jesus-shaped lives that we might literally go, as you say, and that calling to be those of whom Jesus said, you know, the spirit is here when I see the poor being set free, when sight is being restored, when captives go free. And that expansiveness of God, who is enjoyment and love, and our call to take that out, is hugely encouraging and refreshing. So thank you. It's been lovely to welcome you within these walls and to be here together but really that call to go out now uh, following our vocation to be the people of God. So thank you for all that you've brought today. Would you please join with me in thanking (laughs) John?